Uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Exodus chapter 16. If you are unfamiliar, that's the second book in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and I think hopefully you all know how to count to 16. Exodus chapter 16 um, is where we're going to be. We are, um, it worked out in the schedule. I don't, I rarely do this, um, like Mother's Day, I don't preach about mothers or mothering or Father's Day about fathering. Um, Maybe if it worked out sometime, I would do that. It just so happened to the preaching schedule that it would work out and work well to um, take this Sunday to, um, to preach and, and open God's word and talk about thanksgiving or gratitude as God's word calls us to. Now, there are ways to do this. There are all these passages, and most of the passages I looked up at the beginning of the week, and I was like, all right, how am I going to approach this and come after this, is I could turn to any number of psalms that talk about how great it is. Psalm 100, for example, it says it's a psalm for giving thanks. We could talk, turn to Philippians chapter 4, where it talks about giving thanks and giving your anxieties to the Lord, and how giving thanks is a means of, of rooting out those anxieties in all these ways. We are commanded to give thanks over and over and over again, right? You know you're supposed to be a more grateful person. Your grandma will remind you of that this week. That you are supposed to give thanks. And my family, my whole life, we have done this thing. By my, 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 my family, I mean my, my parents' family. Um, with this thing where we take candy corns and we go around the, the, the Thanksgiving table. We each, every, everybody has two candy corns. And, and you can't eat the candy corns until you have given thanks. This, this became awkward when my mom demanded that this, we continue to do this even as we became adults. And apparently she still thought we had a longing for candy corns. And this is the way we were going to give thanks. Go around the, the family table. Yeah, we're commanded to give thanks. You know, give thanks. Uh, but I want to avoid sounding like an angry parent this morning. You know, parents, when you want your kid, when you're really frustrated, you know, Christmas morning, you can, when you give them the gifts, and they, they, there's that one gift they didn't get, get and they, they rage. And I mean, doesn't your blood just boil I had this happen yesterday. I got one of my kids a box of candy. We were going to the West Georgia basketball game, and they didn't have gummy worms. And so I got Swedish fish instead. And the response was, oh, come on. I want to lose my mind. I did lose my mind. <laughs> what, what is this, this ingratitude? Hey, kid, be thankful. That's the way we often try to give, make you be more grateful, right? Don't you know what I do for you? I feed you. I clothe you. I wipe your bottom. I birthed you. Mom said, I birthed you. I gave you life. And you would be this ungrateful to me. You know how good you have it. How many parents have said that? The whole, whole premise by which the way we get kids to eat in this country, right? You have it so good. Eat your Brussels sprouts. Starving kids in other places of the world don't have it as good as you. The the greatest description of this, right, as somebody who grew up in around uh, Orlando, and then my wife and I, we had year-round passes to Disney World. We got a great front-row view of this, the greatest display of ingratitude and and parents' desires to to wield, to, to, to conjure up gratitude in their children as they're dragging their screaming children through Disney Worlds. I I mortgaged the house. You will wait in line in 100 degree weather and you will like it. <laughs> How do you become a thankful person? I could take that approach. You just be grateful. Be grateful. How do we become a thankful people? Well, here's how we become a thankful people. Very, this is your proposition, the main call this morning. You have to remember. You have to remember God's provision for you. Exodus 16, where we get a national day of remembrance, uh, accounts of how, what God's people remember about God's provision. It's very long, 36 verses, and I'm going to read fast. And if you're new, good luck. <laughs> 1 through 36, read in your own Bibles, silently or follow along on the screen. They set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, 
which is between Elim and Sinai, in the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has prepared your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. You're getting the point, right? It kind of repeats... And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay upon the ground. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tents. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath day to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you the bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses. So Moses placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And verse 36, and Omer is the tenth of an ephah. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Um, Thanksgiving, what it is for us as a holiday in our nation, is a national commemoration. It is a means of developing a memory of our story to remember what has happened. In the same way, much of what we get in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and for much of the Old Testament, is just that. It is to help you remember. To remember God's provision. To come to a place of thanksgiving and look and remember the provision of God. 
Why did God, even in their whole, the way they did worship, at the very end there in verse 35, he has them set, or 434 and 35, set aside a jar full of the manna to help them do what? To remember. Why did God write these things down through Moses and through the other writers of the Old Testament? To help them remember. This story helps us remember God's provision. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning, I want to draw out three particular ways in which this calls us to remember. Three facets of God's provision and God's story in our lives to remember. A thankful person remembers, first and foremost, remembers this, the place of God's provision. The place of God's provision. I'm going to give you some background since we're just diving into Exodus 16 here, right in the middle of the story. Exodus tells us the story of God's people, Israel, as they are moving from Egypt, where they are enslaved for over 400 years, to the promised land. And in chapter 12 of the Passover, at the death of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, the Egyptians finally say, we've had it with the plagues, we're sending them out, and the people of Israel are finally set free by the provision of God, and they are led out of Egypt and out into the deserts where God has provided freedom to for them, and he is providing them a way to the promised lands. But where are they right now? They're not in Egypt, but they're certainly not in the promised lands. They are in the wilderness. They are in the wilderness. For many, many generations, for really the, the whole entirety of the Christian life, the history of the Christianity, the people, have, we have looked back at the Exodus, the, um, the trick, the atonement pilgrimage of the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land as being a symbol, as, as something that represents as being kind of a, a paradigm or a parable for the Christian life. And that there is a place in which you are saved, but then living the Christian life until you get to heaven is this place that we could call the wilderness, the wandering on the way to the promised land. We sing of it in one of our great songs we almost always sing at the end of our worship orders is this, on Jordan's stormy banks we stand. Why do we sing about Jordan? That is a reference to the longing of the people of Israel to reach the Jordan land, which was the dividing point into the promised lands. It is the longing of God's people that the end of all things, that this weary road of pilgrimage would be over because right now we are exhausted in the midst of the suffering of living in the wilderness. The people of Israel, the place where God's provision finds them, is the wilderness. There is not any food, there is not any water. And if it's a parable for our life, have you been in the wilderness spiritually? Have you been in the wilderness? The wilderness is when in the spiritual, in your life in which the bottom falls out, when it feels as if the the circumstances of life are against you. Wilderness is when you have lost your foundation, when you're off kilter, when you're not sure, man, the way things are going to go. If you find people in the scripture, when you, people find, read you scripture in the midst of the wilderness trying to encourage you, what do you find in the scriptures when they do that? It's merely annoying to you. It's irritating. You feel lost. You feel as if God has abandoned you in the wilderness. Are you, have you been in the wilderness this year? Some of you have been in the wilderness Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have children that have rebelled. Some of you have gone through unbelievable amounts of sickness and pain. Some of you are going to the wilderness right now. The last couple of weeks, I've been following the um, kind of what's been going on with a friend of ours, not a close friend, but a friend of ours, my wife and I from seminary. Uh, It's this wonderful family, beautiful family. The husband and wife are just both gorgeous people, wonderfully talented have done great in ministry. He's a worship leader out in California. And amongst like kind of the worship leader world, he is growing in the ranks of notoriety. And they have three beautiful children. The world is their oyster. Three weeks ago, three weeks ago, she gave birth to their fourth child. Now, still beautiful, healthy kid. But the crux of the story is this. Three days before she gave birth to that child, their third-born child was diagnosed with brain cancer. Four children, six and under, one with brain cancer, started chemo the week after she gave birth to her fourth child. That's the wilderness. That's the wilderness. When you're wondering where God's provision is, are you in the wilderness? Some of you feel like you've been walking in the wilderness for years, For some of you, this has been a year of wilderness wandering. But for some reason, for some reason, 
and God's providence, where we learn gratitude, the place where we most poignantly experience God's provision is when we are in the wilderness. When you're in that season. Think about it, even within our own national history, how in the world did Thanksgiving come about? Right? There are two critical places in which Thanksgiving, historically, in which Thanksgiving comes about. First, we look back, right? Your kids celebrated this. My kids did. They, just, they uh, either dressed up as pilgrims or as Native Americans, and they went and they had a Thanksgiving feast. And what are we celebrating? 1621. The pilgrims get together after their first year, after landing at Plymouth Rock, and they have this huge festival for three days, giving thanks to God for the first harvest. But what was the context of that Thanksgiving? 102 of them landed at Plymouth Rock. 53 of them celebrated Thanksgiving. Why? Because the rest had died from starvation and from illness, from disease. It was in the context of being in the wilderness that Thanksgiving arose. Why, when did Thanksgiving actually become a national holiday in our country? 1863. When Abraham Lincoln declares that we will have a national holiday, a national day of Thanksgiving. Now, what was going on in 1863? This unbelievably, indescribably awful, destructive war known as the Civil War in which our country is being, was being torn apart. And yet in the wilderness, in the midst of suffering, thanksgiving bubbles up. It is in the midst of the wilderness that we learn gratitude. Why is that? Why is it in this season? Why is that the way it works? In the wilderness we learn glad it's gratitude because I think this. Because in the wilderness that we learn dependence. We learn dependence. Here's what a desert father wrote about becoming dependents. Desert Father is a, usually a Christian, somebody who moved out and lived off hardly anything in the deserts and wrote about the spiritual life as they try to engage with the Lord. But one Desert Father puts it this way. People come to the rabbi, he gave this illustration, and say, why does God tell us to place the words of God upon our hearts instead of in our hearts? And the rabbi says this. It is because as we are, our hearts are closed. We cannot place the words in our hearts So we place them on top of our hearts, and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. In the wilderness, the heart breaks. And it is then when the God's provision, which has always been there, suddenly becomes real. The reality is is that as a people, we are self-reliant. We are self-dependent. And until we are in the wilderness, we will look to all of our self-reliance. We'll look to our own wealth. We'll look to our own autonomy. We'll look to our own ability to change our circumstances. But in the wilderness, we become what? We become helpless. We become dependents. Particularly in America, this is one of our issues, right? Because most often, the vast majority of the areas of our circumstances, particularly of our physical needs... We don't feel necessarily, there is this illusion that we can have control. There is this illusion that we can just, we can have autonomy and we can rely on our own provision. That if you would just work harder, then things will be okay. Until your daughter gets bulimia. And it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't change her. Then we become broken men. The wilderness teaches us that we, more than anything else, we need God. And we need his provision, the provision that only he can provide. Paul says this. Paul had a thorn. He cried out to God. We're not sure what that thorn is, whether it was blindness or whether it was uh, some inability to speak or some significant physical weakness or whether it was even something emotional like depression. But God says, no, I will not take this thorn from you. And what does he say? Because it is in this that my grace is sufficient in weakness, in the midst of weakness. When you are weak, then you are strong. Dan Allender, who's a wonderful counselor, says this, our spiritual journey must lead us through the desert or else our healing would be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence in the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. Has God been so gracious to lead you into the wilderness? Did you know that's what happens with Israel? God led them there. God led them there. He put them there. You don't know how sweet God is until God is all you have. That's what Mother Teresa says. 
You'll not know how much you need God until God is all you have. And so would you be blessed with a wilderness season, a season of brokenness? Jesus went into the wilderness. Did you know that? And he fasted for 40 days. And the devil comes and tempts Jesus. But what does Jesus say? What does he say he needs? He needs God. The devil comes and tempts him and says, you can have all this. And he says, I, man will not live by bread alone. He will live by the very word of God. What he needs is God's. Life changes when you don't need God. You don't go to God to meet your needs. You go to God to get God. When you go to him and say, I have nothing else. There's nothing in my hands I bring. I need you more than anything else. No one wants to do the wilderness, right? No one wants the wilderness. We don't like the wilderness. No one chooses to go through a wilderness. No, you wouldn't worse. Some of you have gone through things either in this year or in past years, some seasons of desert in your life in which you would not wish that season upon your worst enemy. We wouldn't choose to go through it, but when God takes us through it, it is there that we most poignantly experience, maybe for the first time of our life, how unbelievable God's provision is for us. And the good news is this, as in the scriptures, that will God will allow you and maybe send you into the wilderness time and time again, he is the God who pursues you into the wilderness with his provision. Think of the great stories of the Bible. Hagar, she flees the house of Abraham and she runs out and is there that she and her child, she puts her child away from her so that she doesn't have to hear his death cries and it's there that God comes and provides for her. Elijah, Elijah the great prophet, he does battle against the, the, um, the, uh, the priests of Baal. He runs out after this great victory. He runs into the wilderness and he is, throws himself in depression and says before God, I just, just kill me, let me die. And what does he provide? It is there that God provides him an angel who gives him bread to eat. It is in the, in the Psalms that we read over and that you, many of you go to day in and day out for comfort in the midst of your own wilderness. How do the Psalms come about? So many of them begin with what? They begin with lament, but they end with thanksgiving. Because that is the experience of life in the wilderness. Where has God's provision found you? In your story, where have you most profoundly experienced the provision of God? Most likely, it was in a season of the wilderness. So we become grateful people. Remember, remember where God found us with his provision. Where did God find you? But our gratitude goes deeper and runs wider when we also remember that God's provision is not deserved at all. And this is the second thing I want you to see in the text. If you want to become a grateful person, you got to remember the grace of God's provision, the grace of God's provision. The people of Israel are not only a people who are needy and wandering in the wilderness, but how do they respond to it? Are they happy about it? Do they go, okay, God, we submit to your will, humbly and gently and meekly. Lord, if you will provide for us, that would be lovely. No. Verse 1, look at them. They set out from Elim. The congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, right? That's two months after they left Egypt by the calendar. Two months after they left Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you see the insanity of this complaint? If you know anything about the context of Exodus 16, you know how ridiculous this is. Let's just review. Exodus 12. God comes in and says, you know what? I'm going to give you the Passover feast. And by the way, you're going to be free tomorrow because tonight I'm taking out all the Egyptian firstborn sons. And not only does that happen, but the Egyptians go, all right, we've had it. So the Egyptians only say, we're going to set you free. But they say, here's all the wealth of Egypt. Have our sheep. Have our jewels. Have our gold. Just get out. So God provides. Then they go out, they move towards the Red Sea, and what happens? God provides them a, a, a pillar of fire and a cloud that shows that he is constantly with them. Now, have you ever seen a pillar of fire? I haven't. And yet God provides his provision visibly in front of them. And then what happens? They get to the Red Sea, and oh, Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's going to come, and he's going to kill them. And they cry out to God, and what does God do? He opens the Red Sea. They walk through it. They're saved, and the, and the, the armies of Egypt run into the Red Sea, and they're destroyed, set free. And what do they do in Exodus chapter 15? Exodus chapter 15, they sing this song called the Song of Moses, where they rejoice and they throw an enormous party and are praising God for his incredible provision. 
At the end of chapter 15, they move three days out and they find they don't have enough water. And God turns a whole poisonous pond into a water well for them so they can have water for their journey. And now two months later, they get hungry. And what do they say to God? Oh my goodness, it is, it is mere two months later, they're grumbling against Moses and against God. Moses makes it clear, you ain't grumbling against me, you're grumbling against God. That they become delusional accusers of God. Delusional accusers, and that's who we are. Deluded, that means people who are not thinking correctly, which means you have forgotten. You've forgotten what is real. You see how delusional they are? They're asking God, they're complaining, why did you take us out here? We had it so much better in Egypt. This description is hysterical. Look at the description. We had meat pots. That is old school way of saying we had buffets. We lived at an all-inclusive in Egypt. It was awesome. What was going on in Egypt? It was called genocide. They were slaughtering their children and they'd enslaved them. And yet two months out, man, that was a buffet. That Egypt, that was a great place. No. What do they accuse that God is not going to take care of them? Not only that, what they accuse God. Thanks a lot, Moses. Thanks, bud. Thanks for risking your life to come to lead us out of Egypt. Thanks. We appreciate you. Thanks for leading us through the Red Sea, saving our lives from that army. No. What do they do? They accuse God. What do they accuse? They actually accuse God of toying with them. That God, you have brought us out here to get your kicks and giggles and watching us die in the wilderness. That's what they accuse God of. This is unbelievable. And it's in the midst of this. It's in the midst of this national hissy fit. In the midst of this ethnic grumbling, this temper tantrum. What does God do? Did you see this? In between verse 3 and verse 4, they end their grumbling in verse 3. And what's God's response? He calls Moses. He said, you know what, Moses? What's he going to do? I'm going to rain bread for them. That's God's response. My response is to rain bread for them. He's going to provide. God's grace goes further still. God's provision comes even further than that, though. You see it? God gives them instructions. He says, here's the manna. Isn't this great? It's sweet. It's there every day. It's unbelievable provision that they get. Unbelievable provision. And yet he says, here's the, I have some instructions for the way you eat. You got to go out in the morning. You got to gather. And then in the evening, I'm going to provide you quail. And then on Saturday... But the day before the Sabbath, I want you to gather two days' worth. Now listen, if you try to gather more than two days' worth in the middle of the week, it's going to get nasty the next day. So just gather one day. It's coming tomorrow. It's okay. There's always going to be some. And do they follow his instructions? No. He provides them food, and yet here are the people. Verse 35. He says, I'm going to provide this, these people for them. And yet they come and they, 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 they don't, they, where there's one day's bread, they gather more than one day's bread, and so it gets nasty. And then we have these people on the sixth day, they don't gather enough bread. God's got to go to Moses and go, okay, did I not make myself clear? Is this so difficult? Will these people obey me in anything I ask them to do? In Deuteronomy 8, when Moses reflects on this whole scene from Exodus chapter 16, he remembers back and he says, this whole thing was about God testing his people to see whether they would obey my commandments. And what, what, how, did, did they, how did they do with the test? They failed the test. It is impossible to fail the test. All you have to do is go out and get bread for that day and eat it. That is the whole test. And yet they fail and they fail and they fail. But what's God's response to their perpetual fail, Failure perpetual provision verse 35 the people of israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to the habitable land they ate manna till they came to the border of the land of canaan god rained manna and meat upon them for 40 years that's god's response to their perpetual disobedience it's his perpetual provision that is grace they say god you are awful and god says here's my provision for you that's the grace of god you see it when they're grumblers, God provides. When they're disobedient, God provides. We have tests, right? We, God says, I'm testing them. We have tests. And if you fail a test, bad things happen to you, right? I mean, if you're, a, if you're getting ready to be a pilot, and they put you in the simulator, and every time you drive that simulation, you crash land the plane, they kind of go, you know what? We're not going to let you fly with real people or leave in a real plane. You failed the test. You're out. And yet in God's provision, what we see with God, they fail time and time and time again. And yet God says, 
what? I'm going to provide for you. You see, he doesn't say, you know what? You can't be my people anymore. He doesn't say, that's it. No more manna for you. What does he do? He continues to provide. He says, you are my children. You are my people. And so day after day after day, he tests them to strengthen them. But God's covenant is that he will never reject his children. Though we slander him, he will rain down bread upon us. You have to remember the grace of God's provision. How have you responded to God's provision in your life? God provides you a car. Six years later, it breaks down. God, come on. Isn't that our, our response? You get sick at the wrong time. What are you doing? God, come on, God. This is ridiculous. We are a people who so quickly forget, and yet God is gracious time and time again. Well, it runs deep and wide, God's provision, but the place where you must most see God's provision, must you most remember in order to bubble over into gratitude and thanksgiving, is you must remember the abundance of God's provision, the abundance of it. Everything about the description of God's provision here in chapter 16 speaks of abundance. Verse 4, it's going to rain bread. It's raining. You've heard the phrase raining cats and dogs where things go bad? Well, God's saying he's counteracting that with raining bread. You notice he also said, they say we have meat pots and we have bread in heaven. It was a buffet. So what does God do? He gives them bread, rains it down, and he gives them meat every night. He responds to their complaints directly with his provision. Eat as much as you need, he says in verse 16. Everything you need, you can eat to your full. You can eat carbs, It's carbs to the full. That is what this is. It is yeast rolls with honey. That is awesome. And what does he say? Is my provision is daily, and my provision, verse 35, is until you enter the promised land, which means it's going to be until the very end. This is God's promise for you, is that he will bring you home. That his provision in this life is until he calls you to himself. And that is what he provides here. He provides as much as they need. He provides it every single day. And he says, I'm going to promise to provide it until you come home to me. In the physical wilderness, where manna was provided, the manna was the physical sustenance that God gave. But the manna points to the fact that in our personal wildernesses, in our spiritual journey, God has given us manna. God has given us daily provision. Through what? Through what? And Moses 8 I mean, Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this, reflects on these early days in the wilderness, and he's going to repeat what Jesus is going to later repeat in the wilderness, or he's going to communicate what Jesus is going to later repeat when he says this, you should remember that the whole, whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, test you to know that what is in your heart, whether you should we keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Moses is making a spiritual connection to their physical existence, just as Jesus is going to do. That we need something more than money and cars and houses. What you ultimately need is the provision from God's word. What that means is you have to learn to turn the truth of God's word into spiritual bread. To chew on it in such a way that it becomes your spiritual and emotional life. In the wilderness times, it's that time that you turn to the bread of God. The word of God's, this Bible and the scriptures. The word of God is the great buffet. It is the meat pots and the raining breads that is provided for you. Have you considered this? How God has provided his word abundantly in this world? That the word of God is found in just about every language and tribe and tongue. Some of you have Bibles in places. It's under couches gathering dust because you have so many Bibles. You're not even sure where they all are. You have them on your phones now. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. But the word of God freely shovels what into us? When the word of God feeds us, what is it feeding us with? Or should I say with whom? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. You'll read a number of lengthy passages there. Soon after we get to Jesus and then the Gospels, in John chapter 6, this is one of the accounts, the Gospel accounts of Jesus after he has given um, the bread and fish and, and fed thousands of men and women 
from a few loaves of bread and fish. And the people of Israel are coming to him after hearing of this great miracle or maybe even participating, getting to see it and taking part in it. They come to Jesus and they want him to do more miracles. And here's what Jesus says to them, picking up in John chapter 6, verse 27. I mean, it's a little bit lengthy reading, so bear with me. Do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? And what work do you perform? And what do they point back to about God's provision so they could believe? They point back to the account in Exodus 16. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Drop down to verse 47. He continues this line of thinking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes is eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. You get it? What did you say in John 6? Don't work for the bread that perishes, but seek the bread that endures to eternal life, which is the son, which the Son of Man will give you. And what is God giving us? What does the Father provide for us for eternal life? Himself. In the person of Jesus. Jesus says, Are you hungry? Are you emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically exhausted? I am the bread you need. I am the provision that you need. The wilderness teaches you dependence. The wilderness teaches you that what you need is God himself. And then in the word of God, what do we have? We have a feasting table, a banqueting table that time and time again from Genesis to Revelation points you and says, who you need to eat on is Jesus himself. It is God himself. And the whole point of what we're looking at in point three is this, is the abundance of God's provision in Jesus is Jesus stingy with himself? Does he say, I'm going to give you myself some days, but not others? Am I going to provide some aspect of my life, but not all my life? Absolutely not. What does Jesus do? He comes and he walks amongst us. Jesus is giving himself to us. He walks in the wilderness. This is the whole point. He leaves his baptism. Remember this in Mark chapter 2? I believe it is. And Matthew chapter 4 is for the other occasion in the other gospel. And Jesus goes out after his baptism and he's in the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. What is he doing? He's reliving the Israelite wilderness journeys. And what he's saying is I am entering into the wilderness of this world with you and I will do it perfectly. I will live out the wilderness life perfectly so that I can provide you. I can enter into your wilderness and provide you perpetual provision. I will come alongside you. I am the priest who understands your sufferings. Jesus gives abundantly of himself. He gives abundantly of himself. Karen Blixen, some of you know her, have read her books. Her most favorite book, or famous book is probably uh, called, it's called Out of Africa, but after she had left her um, African sojourn, she went back to Scandinavia, uh, where she spent many of her years. And she wrote under a pseudonym named, uh, by the name Isaac Dennison. And one of the most famous stories that came out under that pseudonym was a book called Babette's Feast. Some of you may be familiar with this. Some of you may have seen the movie. And the story is set in a small Danish village, a sea kind of sea town uh, along the Danish coast. And in this village, it is primarily and prominently made up of an Orthodox Lutheran sect. They wear nothing but black. They were stern and austere. They live incredibly simple lives. They believe that God gave you a tongue to praise him with, but not to necessarily enjoy things with. And so their food that they ate was this, you know, in the movie, it's just this, it looks, it's disgusting. Usually it's plain cod with bread mushed up into this broth. And that's what they ate day in and day out. Well, they gathered together religiously. Every Sunday they were incredibly pious. They gathered together and sang their songs. They were austere and strict in all their ways of keeping the law. But yet they had a problem. 
They hardly spoke to one another. In the backgrounds, there was relational rifts that went back for generations. They actually didn't like each other. There was no unity around the gospel. And it is into this scene that this French woman stumbles into their village. She is fleeing a revolution where her husband and son were killed. And she comes and she lives with the daughters of the Lutheran pastor. And she becomes their cook. And the book is about the various mishaps that she has and the, the clash of cultures of this woman who comes in with her, 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 her vigor for life and all that is artistic and beautiful and this austere village and the, the funny things that happen and, and the awkward kind of engagement they have originally, relationally. But for 10 years, she lives amongst this, this sect, this very orthodox, strict group. But after 10 years, she wins the lottery back in France. And so she's going to prepare. She can go back. It is now going to be safe for her to go back. She's going to have the wealth that she needs to live on her own. She doesn't have to provide for herself anymore. And so she's preparing to go back. And as, as, as the way that they've cared for her and embraced her over these 10 years, she wants to thank this wonderful little village. And so she's going to gather them all together and feed them a massive feast. One last night together. And so for months and months and months, Babette prepares for this feast. She orders food from all over the world, the richest wines and champagnes. It comes in on the boats, the great, great slabs of beef and meat and uh, all sorts of uh, herbs and gardenous aspects, fruits and vegetables come on the boats and she's preparing. And on December 15th, they're going to celebrate this great feast. And they gather in this one area. And the feast begins. And the people, they've had conversations for months about how they're going to, to not let Babette have them be led astray by her wild food and her wild drink. And they're going to they're gonna ha- participate because they don't want to offend Babette. But they want to participate this one last night, but then they're going to say, then we're going to go back to our life. And so they all gather for the feast and they begin the first course in which there's the soup. And it's quiet and austere as all of their meals are. But at the very end, the soup is so good that one person slurps up the last bit of soup. This is a horrific social faux pas. And then the next course comes, and the wine the champagne begin to be poured. And they begin to loosen. And they begin to be warm. And suddenly they begin to enjoy their food. And they're loving it so much that they begin to sing Babette's praises. And they're standing up, and they're sharing stories of their time about with Babette. And as things go on, it gets more and more joyous and raucous. One woman burps at the end of one of the courses. Another man looks at her and goes, hallelujah. <laughs> they begin actually, in the midst of this feast, begin to relationally come back together. Two women who have been gossiping behind each other's backs for years are actually becoming unified and asking forgiveness. Two men who have done each other wrong in a business deal are coming back together in unity and doing and making reconciliation and restitution. And as the evening goes on, it goes into this great and joyous and raucous singing. And they begin to, at the very end, they begin to sing the hymns, the same hymns that they've sung in church on the Sabbath day for week in and week out for years without any passion and devoid all it has been duty. And yet they're now singing these hymns with great joy as men who sing in a beer hall lustily. But then they begin to weep because Babette is going to go away. You see who Babette is? She's the Christ figure, right? That Jesus comes into religious, staid, dutiful places and he said, feast upon me and you will experience joy. Well, they're weeping now because now they must say goodbye to Babette. But Babette turns to them and says, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Why? Because I spent all of my winnings on the feast. Jesus spent all the winnings on the feast. His provision for you, brothers and sisters, that we celebrate month in and month out at the communion table is he has poured out his lifeblood. He spent it all for you. So that you, for some of you have been running from him, and some of you who have been doing this religious duty thing, but you've been doing it without any gratitude and thanksgiving for God. Your heart is hard and it is cold. Would you come to the feast of God's provision, the abundant provision of God? I said this earlier at Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things? He gave you a son. And you're worried, you're worried about next month's electric bill. Listen, work hard, labor, but look to the one who can provide for your soul.
Why is it that God is able to, to love disobedient grumblers like you and me? Because Jesus went and walked the wilderness road, and he did it with gratitude, and he did it with joy, so that God could welcome disobedient grumblers like you and me to the feast time and time again. Ascend real quickly. I just want to apply this very briefly to help you learn how to remember three things real brief, three rhythms in your life. You need rhythms to learn how to become grateful. You gotta have seasons in which you remember, right? That's why we have holidays. They're rhythms. They're times of feasting to remember. We are creatures of habit. We need routines and rituals, right? You get up and you have your cup of coffee and you brush your teeth. Those are really good rituals, especially the brush your teeth parts. Routines and rituals are not a bad thing. They help us keep track and they help remind us of what is most important. So three, three rhythms for you. One daily, one weekly, one monthly. First daily, personal time with God that ends with gratitude in the morning and the evening. Right? What does man live upon but the word of God? Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is abundance of resources there. Daily, getting God's word. Listen, we, Brianna mentioned it. We have a reading plan at King's Chapel. You can jump in at any time. It's there on the website. We're also, every time we shift books, Tina's going to help you learn how to read God's word specific to the book that we're going to be in. This is a great opportunity. Get accountability. Get a group of three or four people and say, hey, let's read the reading plan together and let's get in God's word together because it's there that you will feast on Jesus. Now, you may be uncomfortable with this whole language of feasting on Jesus, but like the body and blood of Christ, feasting on Jesus. It's actually, you shouldn't be uncomfortable with that. We use that all the time, right? He devours books. We swallow stories. We chew on ideas. What it means is you're pondering, you're meditating, you're digesting, you're taking it in. What you need to do is you've got to appropriate Jesus day in and day out. You have to feast on who he is. It is ridiculous to say, right, I ate three weeks ago. I'm good. Some of you are spiritual skeletons because you don't have any idea what it is to feast on a day in and day out basis. May I also suggest to you your personal worship time need not be overly long, but should be more frequent. You know, most of the, the ancient religions in this world, they're, listen, they, a lot of them don't have Jesus. Some of them don't even come close. They have idols. But Muslims and Catholics and Jews get it right far better than us evangelical Protestants. You know this whole five times of prayer thing? What is that? It's a rhythm. You know what Catholics do? They have the daily rite, the daily office, Anglicans do this. And yet, if Protestants, we are so independent that we think, oh, we can do it ourselves. How has that served us? Listen, for many of you, it's not serving you well. Man, the, one of the most famous books in, in the Protestant world for doing this, though, is, is Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Why is that? Because the very nature of the devotional is, in the morning and the evening, you do little reasons to remember what God has done for you. Could I even challenge you for this, especially those of you who are, who are social media people? Some of you are being driven to anxiety because the first thing you do is you get on social media or you check your email. Would you not get on social media till you've actually thanked God for the day and for his provisions before you get on and enter the world of chaos? Second rhythm, the weekly rhythm, Sabbath keeping. The provision of manna and the keeping of the Sabbath went hand in hand in the life of Israel, Right? They got two days of provision on the sixth day. So on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, they need not work. We are in desperate need of a Sabbath in our culture. And some of the reasons why we are ungrateful is because we work so hard. We work ourselves to the bones to keep up with the Joneses. You, you, You and your wife both have jobs. You have to have multiple jobs. Why? And it's running you ragged. You have no time to dwell with the Lord. You have no time to engage with your, with your kids. And you have no space to be thankful because you are so desperate for stuff that you're going to get by your own hands that you won't even take a day off. You know, it's actually in the Ten Commandments. I'm just reminding you. It's a law. And God's laws are for your good to rest. Husbands and wives of young kids, because the first thing that young moms and young dads thinks is, yeah, right. Could you work out, in your next day, could you do this? Could you work out how at least you could provide two Sabbaths for each other each month? An afternoon, 
of provision to rest and be quiet? Did you get with God? Man, we need Sabbath. Sabbath keeping provides space and time to rejoice in God's presence. It reminds you, it alters you in such a way that you come in contact with the God of the universe. I think far more of you would do daily devotions if you actually had weekly times with God. You start there, and guess what happens? You begin to realign your brain and your heart to enjoy God's presence. Start with the weekly Sabbath. Lastly, the monthly rhythm, and that's celebrate communion. You know what the Catholics call communion? Eucharist, right? It comes from the Greek word thanksgiving. It's a good word. Communion or the Lord's table is the communal act of feasting together in a time of remembrance that leads to thanksgiving. That's what it is. The ancient God ordained and yes, God commanded call to Sabbath keeping is the most significant means of becoming a person of thankfulness. And praise the Lord for within that Sabbath keeping, he has given us a culture of feasting. He gave us a feast upon his body and his blood. And do you understand this? This is so beautiful. We end with this. Don't you love our communion bread? I mean, you've been other places and you're like, oh no, it's communion. We gotta choke down this cardboard. It's all because supposedly on the Passover, right? Passover, they have unleavened bread. Our bread is unleavened. It's shortbread, but it's also sweet. Now listen, you could go into all kinds of, you could go down the rabbit hole of symbolism and we won't do, I just wanna point to this. Isn't it so good that God gave them sweet manna? It tasted like honey. It tasted like honey. It tasted like honey. What was that supposed to remind them of? Where they were going. We feast month in and month out to remind us, brothers and sisters, that the wilderness that you're walking in, it will end one day. And God has provided a feast along the way to point forward and say, one day, one day, we will enter the feast of Thanksgiving. We will gather around the table. And like at Babette's feast, we will sing our Savior's praises. The one who gave us his all. If you want an African, you can't do those things, just come tonight. Just come tonight and remember what God has done. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. Thank you for your unbelievable provision. You found us, your provision is found to some of us in the worst ways desperate and needy and tired and worn and yet you have provided thank you God you have given us like little children who who get candy and complain about the type of candy that we get (laughs) and yet God time and time again you give us what we don't deserve and Lord you've given us your son the root and foundation for all thanksgiving God, awaken our hearts to be a grateful people, a thankful people. God, draw us there. Draw us to the place of feasting. We look and we ponder and we reflect on all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And in that, Lord, we then simply bubble over with thanksgiving and gratitude. Lord, we can't conjure this up. So Spirit of the living God, do something in us to make us living and breathing people who give thanks to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.